0: Okay. Welcome back to Art Smack, a very special edition, episode 10. We are here today with New York Times contributing critic, Blake Gopnik, somebody who I have been aware of since I became a sentient artist and whose work as a writer I've known and admired for many years. So it is Quite the honor to be sitting across the table from you and to be meeting you in real life for the first time. Welcome to Art Smack, Blake.
1: Thank you. It's a complete treat. And I'm hoping that as the 10th Art Smacker, I'll be able to do something fun.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just don't smack
2: us too hard. hard.
1: Only verbally. I intend <laughs> to beat the hell out of you verbally.
2: Blake, so for our audience who aren't familiar with your work, do you want to give a quick background about, you know, what you've been working on so far, your background and everything? love to hear
1: it. Uh, Everything do we have? How long do we have? Um, (laughs) Born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, grew up in Montreal, did medieval studies of all things at McGill University. That was after actually thinking I was not going to be an academic. My family's full of academics. I thought I was not going to be an academic. I was going to be a photographer. Did that for actually a couple of years and got tired of greasing chickens. That was my job. A lot of my job was oiling chicken breasts for photography. So quit that, went to McGill, got a degree in medieval studies, went to Oxford for my graduate work, and after fiddling around with medieval studies, actually starting a doctorate on 10th century Italian land contracts. I quit that and became an art historian. Then completely by luck, an art critic went on holiday at the Globe and Mail in Toronto when I filled in, and then he left for another publication. So somehow or other, I ended up being the art critic of the Globe and Mail, which everyone says is the New York Times of Canada.
0: You're just like a social climber. Uh,
1: totally, completely. It was all about ass-licking, 100%. I continue. That's basically my modus operandi as a critic. Yeah, Totally. Here at Art
2: Smack, we ask the hard-hitting questions, right? This is what we're known for. It's where we are very tough on
1: our guests. I just yeah. asked you some questions and throw it around. We prepared some stuff. You have no idea what we're about to talk to you about, right? Absolutely. Is it, is it art? Are we going to talk about art in the art world? Or I, what, cats? We, we could talk about cats. I'd prefer I think to talk about we're cats. We're actually going
2: to switch this to cat talk, cat smack. is the name We'll of the get more hits.
1: Before. We'll definitely get more hits. All right. So, Blake, I, I first became familiar with the work with the- Wait a second. I just want to say one thing. I want to talk for one millisecond about my cat Nice who is the smartest cat in the world, she fetches like crazy. She's obsessed with fetching hair elastics. If you shoot, like many times a day, I've got to shoot a hair elastic. She comes in meowing when I'm trying to write and demands that I go back, that I praise her and say, what a good girl, you are nice. And then I shoot the hair elastic and about an hour later, she comes with it in her mouth and says, do it again. So this is this whole thing is an Jerry, honor. Jerry, please move
2: your hair elastic. Okay, so
0: we can no, no, to no. I need, to ex- I need to explain something to you, Blake. Oh. I hear She her. just did it. I hear her. You she's are meowing in the other nice. room. Nice, nice.
1: And that means she's got a hair elastic and she's going to meow louder and louder until I shoot it. So we may have to take a break later okay. and I'll shoot the goddamn elastic. So
2: I picked up your book in 2020. It was the middle of COVID. My book. Your book. We which... didn't mention what my book is. So let's talk about it because I loved it. I bought it three times. I told you earlier before we met, I bought it for two other friends because I loved it so much and I knew that they would love it too. So I bought it for them. So, you wrote a book on Andy
1: Warhol in
2: 2020.
1: I wrote a thousand-page biography of Andy Warhol for my sins. I did something wrong in a previous life and ended up writing a thousand-page biography of Andy Warhol, which could have been 4,000 pages. Easy. Easy. Yeah, easy. I got to say, Andy is
2: such a big artist, I think, in both of Jerry and I's lives and some... yeah. I mean your logo, the Jerry Gagosian logo. Yeah. Do you I mean, know that... do
0: you know where, where my logo comes or from?
1: Is the head? I don't. know. I'm I've... shocked and appalled to say.
0: Okay. Back when I was anonymous as Jerry Gagosian, I was trying to figure out what my logo it would be and sort of the ethos and the voice. And I always imagined obviously Jerry Gagosian in my m- mind was a man and I always admire the wit of like a sassy gay man. I I just I I think it is superior humor. <laughs> and so I aspire towards the sassy humor of a gay man. And I always imagine that you know, I I've, I've read quite a bit about Andy including portions of your book. But one of my favorite books is The Philosophy of Andy Warhol from A to B and Back Again. I've read it. Mm, I I read it about every two years for the past 10 years. Excellent. I love that book. And I I was like, hmm, I I need to incorporate Andy into this somehow, but like I don't want to like get in trouble or get caught or whatever. And I thought, just, you know, Andy Warhol's wig would be enough. So I Google image Andy Warhol's wig, and I found this picture from an auction that took place at Christie's in 1998. So I figured no one would like be looking and like pester me for like copyright issues for a photo. Uh, I don't think his
1: wig is copyrighted. Just, just to be clear on the wig side of things
0: (laughs) from 1998. And like the photo was so pixelated because it was like from an Auction record from 1998. It was a single-owner
2: sale of just a misfit of objects. It yeah, like and that. it was it, his wig, his actual it was wig, his actual, his actual, his actual wig,
0: wig. Uh-huh. Andy Warhol's wig, and so that is Jerry Gagosian's logo.
1: Excellent, excellent taste.
0: But what led you to write the book on Andy Warhol, the 1,000-page compendium? <laughs>
1: You know, anyone, any half-decent critic has written, you know, after 10 years, has written 10 pieces on Andy Warhol because he's just everywhere. You end up reviewing his shows constantly. So I already thought he was totally fascinating. I think I liked him more than most critics did. I like the late work. That's one of the things that that made me, I think, different from other critics. Pretty early on, I realized, no, there's some weird, fascinating stuff happening with, the, you know, the piss paintings and the camouflage paintings. I thought, wow, these are serious and interesting. And then, honest to God, it was kind of obvious that the book needed to be written. There wasn't one. That's what was so weird. There was no proper so-called definitive biography of Andy Warhol. So it was kind of no-brainer to, that it needed to be written. Of all the books that needed to be written, that was one. That that was obvious. I, uh, Newsweek, where I was the critic for two years, had just folded. So I needed something to do. And that was the obvious book to write in a way. And it turned out there was an interest in it from publishers. So and that, what, did
0: you, what did you find writing the book that you didn't know c- coming into it? Because you pro- obviously had a lot of probably prior knowledge. But was there anything you found coming out of it that you were like, holy shit, I didn't know that?
1: Just about, yeah, everything. Every single page of the 1,000-page book, there's something I didn't know before. I mean, you know, the biggest thing for me is just how smart he was, that he was not, you know, he portrayed himself as this goofy, naive, but he was incredibly well-educated and intelligent and, you know, just a really sharp guy. And most importantly, he knew everything about art, really understood at every moment what the most interesting, exciting move was to make in the art world. That's, That's the thing that impressed me. And and he would he would change his outward appearance and
2: style, right? And I think in the book you documented some of the changes he went through in the fifties into the sixties. Where the fifties he was a part of, I guess, the window dressing movement. Is that correct?
1: Well, that's what they called it. For yeah, Coley. he was he was in kind of the the suits the the Fay New York gay scene. Yeah, you know, which meant you dressed up. You had a paisley lining in your suit. You were mm-hmm. effeminate and well dressed and fancy. He was fancy. Was he?
0: F- Friends with what was his name? The guy that rode the bike and took the photos and Bill Cunningham. Bill Cunningham, like that period.
1: Okay. What's super weird is I found an invitation that Andy illustrated in like I think it's fifty eight or something, and it was an invitation to a show of Bill's hats.
0: Yeah, and I had no the, idea Bill had a store. Bill Cunningham
1: was, but I don't. I think I'm the first person to realize that that's what that invitation was yeah. for because it's weird. It's worded in a weird way that. Is it makes it unobvious, but yeah, they, they knew each other back in those days,
2: yeah. you know. And then the 60s, he threw on the leather jacket and the shades, right? He
1: yeah, and the, the King of Cool. Pretty like. late. Like yeah. after people think, oh, that's Andy, the pop artist was, you know, wore leather jackets, biker jackets and shades. He's done as a, as a pop artist by then. I mean, yeah. basically all the famous pop works are done by early sixty four. When he was still just a kind of average guy, dressing more or less like, you know, an artist in chinos, and then the the Andy Cool Cat stuff happens way after, or quite a bit after, when he turns himself into really a kind of member of the Velvet Underground, yeah. like part of the counterculture. Yeah, uh,
0: the best show that I ever saw of Andy Warhol's work. It was one of the last shows in Norway. It was called Andy Warhol East Meets West. Oh, huh, interesting. The curator was, like, proposing this idea that Andy philosophically was sort of the closest artist to someone who could basically be considered, like, zen and be considered, like, a maximalist Western yeah. consumer, consumerist. Like if you really listened to what he was saying, there was something incredibly zen about what he was saying and this like idea of letting go of everything. And then at the same time, there was this inherent like everything, 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 consumerism all the time, everything. And that was, I think, the moment for me when I fell in love with him.
1: Although, you know, okay, so we're talking about how smart Andy were all. And here's the the fundamental problem with talking about Andy at all, is that he could have been faking the Zen thing, right? Totally. Zen was incredibly in fashion, right? I mean, John Cage is all about Zen. Everyone was talking about Zen. So he was so smart that he may have realized that, oh, I need to make available to my audience a Zen reading of me. And that'll be really interesting because I already have the maximalist capitalist reading of me. So you never know with Andy what's real, what he thinks, mm-hmm. and what he's just saying because it's, it'll mess with people or because he knows he's supposed to say it. But, of course, that's true of every one of us. Like, how do I know that everything you're now saying isn't complete <laughs> BS and inside it you're a raging maniac football fan or, you know, right, but it doesn't, we all can be lying at all times. But it
0: doesn't matter. That's like, that is what, that's what's crazy. It doesn't matter. It does not matter.
1: Well, except he puts it on the table. Yeah. It's true of all of us. But with him, because he's such an obvious liar half the time, it, he puts on the table the problem of truth. And that's a hell of a thing to do.
0: Yeah, because, I, OK, so I've read that book so many times I almost have it memorized. Like I read the sentences and I'm like, I could skip it, but I don't skip it. You know, when uh, you read a book so many times like yeah. that. And I I like it but i can read through it now i read past it i read in between the lines when i'm reading it and i see that it's problematic and i read i read the lies i read loneliness uh-huh. i i read that like he's backstabbing people that he's betraying people that he's that he hates himself. I read all that's, of these that's things. Important. Yeah.
2: I was going to say, what, the first time I read the book, if you were to ask me, what did you learn that you didn't know before was how deeply self-conscious he was deeply about his skin. Remember, you, you outlined yeah. a lot yeah. of he was, a, he his was, skin, his hair.
1: These are real things on his mind. Except I think time. he's pretty cute. That's the weird thing. He had a warm <laughs> sense of You know, of I think, yeah. you know, not always, but in a lot of pictures, he's, you know, he's got these great cheekbones. Yeah. I think he's kind of sexy. And apparently, in the '60s or '50s, at least, he had a great body, and he worked out. He hit it like crazy. That was so he crazy. Out. He
2: was like a meathead. Did you know that?
1: No. He before, before anyone was like no one went to gyms doing in the pull ups,
2: just like being in shape. You I don't know. think we think of, of Andy Warhol as this like muscle bound guy who was interested in his body, but he was. Yeah.
1: Deeply. Yeah. I mean, apparently, he was ferociously strong yeah. too. It's the weirdest. He's so full of contradictions.
2: I think that's why it's so fascinating, Yeah,
1: totally. And a genius, I think a genuine genius. Now, the thing about the philosophy of Andy Warhol is that we know chunks of it were ghostwritten as all of his books. Like some of his books were almost completely ghostwritten. So you never know what he said, what was written by a ghostwriter and he said, yeah, that's what I believe. What was written by a ghostwriter where he said, I don't believe that, but let's put it in the book anyways. Like, mm-hmm. it's just the fact that everything comes through other people. It's
2: mm-hmm. kind of like Prince Harry. Oh, I'm just kidding.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I always think of Warhol and Prince Harry as almost identical. You, <laughs> yeah, you want to hear a,
0: it, there's sort of an interesting metaphor for me. I don't know what this says, but you, you know in London there used to be the circle line?
1: Yeah, yeah, of yeah. course.
0: So when I bought that book, I bought it in London. I went. Th- I was very lost in my 20s, li- literally and figur- figuratively <laughs> in all ways. But I bought that book at a store. I didn't know anything. I just saw, like, the candle- Campbell soup and his name, and, like, it was enough. It's so funny because I was so poor when I – oh, my God. I was, so, I was so excruciatingly poor when I lived in London, and I couldn't get a job because I didn't have a visa. So I was, like, working as, like, taking coats for, like, eight quid an hour, like – under the table, like, barely paying rent somewhere. and it. But the Tate was free for, like, the main collection. So I got so knowledgeable about Uh. everything that was in the main collection at the Tate. I could basically be a docent back then. I used to take my friends. It was, like, fun. And I would, like, show them everything. That's, like, how I learned about Carolee Schneeman. That's how I learned about, like, all these different artists. Basquiat. I didn't know about Basquiat until the Tate. You know, like let's I like, talk
1: about museums later. Yeah, and museum permanent collections.
0: Permanent collections. But anyway, I bought this is when I bought the philosophy of Andy Warhol. And the circle line, it was cold that day. And I got on the circle line and it it was a train that literally ran in right. a circle. And it was so good and it was so cold outside and I had nowhere to be that I just sat and I read the whole book because it's so engrossing. I read the whole book on the circle line.
1: That's lovely. That's and I just, it,
0: and it, like, it is, it it bewitched me, literally. Yeah. And I'm not saying, like, it's it's weird because I resent him, sort of, because I, and I think that in some ways, myself and, you know, the art world, we have taken him too literally.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's so many ways to take him too literally. It's ridiculous.
0: Just because he's a genius doesn't mean that he's right and that we need to live by his wor- words. Well, how you do know? we
1: know what they are? That's the thing. If you take him literally, it means you think you know what he had in mind or what his art means. But with art as, as, you know, as varied as his, not even varied, as impossible to pin down. How do you know when you're influenced by him in the first place? How do you know that you're being influenced by Andy and not just by the cliches about Andy Warhol? That's right. the thing. Is there all these stupid cliches that float about who he was and what his art meant? That was one of my questions is what is his legacy today? You
2: know, it, and this is a question for both of you because I feel, I feel red hot passion from, from, from both. You like, go first. Like what, right. what is his legacy today? Are there Warholian artists out there that are carrying the mantle? You know, what's your guys' read?
1: It's a hard question to answer because I think his genius was in his sophistication. So to be a truly Warholian artist, to really wear his mantle, you'd have to be unbelievably sophisticated and intelligent and complex. And there aren't that many artists who are doing that. (laughs) There are lots of artists who are doing stupid pseudo-pop work. And, you know, there's lots of people imitating his style, but not imitating his achievement. You know, and that's probably true every time someone's influenced by a great artist. They're imitating the superficial aspects of that artist, which is all you can imitate. Otherwise, you're just trying to be a genius and everyone tries to be a genius and we all fail, you know.
0: God, it makes me want to cry.
1: Go ahead. We're here for you.
0: Okay. There's, There's this obsession, especially in the United States, with money. With money. Period. Of course. And it's that money is always the validator of genius. And that if, you, if the money is not there, then there is no evidence of genius.
1: Yeah, that's a weird American disease. I just wrote about it in a piece that's going to be coming genius. out in the... Oh, it's a, I think it's a total disease. And
0: I believe that that is an Andy Warhol hangover at the very least. I don't know if that is a direct Andy Warholism but to some extent, that is an Andy Warhol hangover.
1: Yeah, I can't blame Andy for all of capitalism. That no. seems not quite fair to poor Andy. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a total misread that, well, court, he that said, everyone's involved but with.
0: But he said, toward, you know, to, especially in, in the book, A to B and back again, he said, you know, for, from now on, I would not like to be referred to as an artist. I would like to be referred to as a business artist. And, you know. All, all schools from now on should not be art schools. They should be art business schools. And all art from now on should be art biz, or business art.
1: He didn't say all art. I think he said his art. But yeah. Okay. So I am in the middle of curating my first ever show, which is terrifying and a huge amount of work. Congrats, Congratulations. So yeah, it's going to be, well, it's going to start off in Stockholm and we'll see if anyone else wants to take it afterwards. Yeah. And it's about business art, Andy Warhol's concept of business art. And I'm, proposing with, I hope, lots and lots of evidence that that was a full-blown conceptual art practice, Mm -hmm. that this was a sophisticated move that was mostly poking fun at uh, his own attempts to sell out, everyone's attempts to sell out. It was, here, let me lower my voice, it was problematizing the issue of capitalism in art. And it's, it's sophisticated, but when Andy does something early on in 68, say, that's a totally different thing than someone simply selling out today. There's a difference between selling out and making art about selling out by selling out. And that's just art is complex. There's no way around it. And you're never gonna be able to tell which is going on. And that's as it should be.
0: Amen to that. Okay, so I have a I have a question for you. So we have this game that we play called Picasso or Duchamp, but actually. I would say that there are many regurgitations of, essentially, Picasso, Monet, Matisse, Duchamp, and Warhol. Those are sort of like the top five artists that you see re- with regularity. And I'm just curious, from your perspective, you know, do you think that we can move on culturally from these artists... Or are these artists basically just here to stay and the only way that we can move on is to just keep painting them and remaking them and remaking them until we break them?
1: Oh, that's that that last bit about breaking them is interesting. What I was going to say before you finished talking, because I always think about what I want to say before I listen to the other person, is that I think there are two options, but now maybe two and a half options. One is... That, yeah, we'll keep repeating them because the Western concept of fine art, which is, I think, a very particular weird thing, is exhausted. It's over. There's nothing more to say. And that's fine. We'll do other things and not make this thing called fine art. That's one possibility. And we'll just keep, we'll either just stop because it'll die, like 17th century emblem books. You probably don't even know what those are. They were the most popular art form. Oh, my God, they were hot. In the 17th century, now we don't look at them (laughs) at all because they're incredibly boring. So it could just die.
0: Now I really want one, by the way. (laughs) Now
1: you're going to look at emblem books and you'll fall asleep. They're really good for putting yourself to sleep. They're stupid combinations of images and allegorical statements. So they're basically just symbolic images, just a book one after another of lame symbolic images. So that's the one possibility is it'll all die. That's fine. We'll move on to other forms of creativity. Other possibility is that genius will come along as they do when we never can predict them, because if we could predict them, we'd be that genius, right? A new Warhol will come along. A new Picasso will come along. A new Titian will come along. I mean, I'm happy to go back to the 16th century here. And will blow us all away and do something completely new that we couldn't have predicted. And, you know, that's what's mostly happened. I, I think fine art has only existed for 500 years. That's one of my little takes. And it's happened a bunch of times that everyone thought everything was done and then, you know, a Caravaggio comes along and, and blows everyone out of the way. Okay,
0: wait. Pause. Yes. Go back to you think fine art has only existed for 500 years.
1: Okay.
2: I've got like, some cavemen friends, I, friends France. I've, I've got like,
1: What are you talking about? Come on. Wait, wait, you studied wait, art wait, prior to that. Wait, wait, wait. Please. Fine art.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Otherwise called fart. Fine art. <laughs> is something very particular, and it's different from visual creativity, visual culture, the larger thing we call art. And in a way, it's like, I don't know, like bat and bat. Bat can be a flying thing, or bat can be the thing you hit a ball with, right? And they sound the same, but they mean completely different things. Well, I think that's what art and, and art, aka fine art, are. They're really quite different. And we confuse them, as they say, ad hoc, pedal. Fine art is a game. Fine art is a weird, fascinating, amazing, exciting, brilliant invention that happens mm-hmm. around 1500 in Italy, basically. And we've been, we've been doing it. We've been playing with it. It's, it's something that's about cogitation. It's about looking at these objects and thinking, what can I do with these? Other kinds of visual culture, we usually know what they're for. They're to conjure the favor of a god or to show how powerful we are. There's lots of, you know, art is usually functional. The art that, where the function isn't clear, that's fine art. And that's super weird and has only existed since about 1500. And, you know, it's like chess. Imagine if everyone stopped playing chess. That could happen. I guess it kind of has happened. And there's, you know, uh, that's fine. Uh, And
0: that's why you think like car, it's funny because I just, I just did a, there's this amazing podcast actually called Art Holes. Have you heard of Art Holes? I haven't. It's really good. It's k- kind of like Dan Carlin. Have you heard of Dan Carlin? He's uh, a historian. I haven't. Okay, so we call I, him- I should
1: just say, when I'm writing books, I'm only allowed to read yeah. the subject oh, of the goddamn okay. book. So I am immersed in 1920s United States at the moment.
0: Okay, so we call him Baby Dan Carlin, the, the host, but this guy who hosts Art Holes just did this d- deep 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 dive into Caravaggio which is amazing uh-huh. Uh-huh. amazing it, it was so over good over ten,
2: 10 hours story in uh, it's podcast like about what? his life or yeah, about the everything
0: word? in the setup huh.
2: it starts it off completely. Starts off with with Jesus of Nazareth i mean this is where he goes and, back
0: and like
2: story like the
0: catholics and the right. the Problem butter the, the butter the butter versus the olive oil and like how and why and what nepotism it means and Hmm. and how how caravaggio could even come into existence and everything and it i you know i thought i knew what who caravaggio was and then all of a sudden he starts describing what those paintings were and how they were i i mean this is maybe a terrible way to describe them but like pixar i like to use pixar as an example where like a pixar cartoon can make a prelingual child giggle uh-huh. and, and can make a 37-year-old woman on a transcontinental flight ball her eyes out and re- completely relate to all the characters, you know?
1: That woman would be, hmm. Hmm.
0: But, you know, Caravaggio, that, that, that's what his paintings were doing. They, they were like, they were talking to the poor people They were talking to – they and saying, fuck you to the rich people. They were talking to the rich people. They were talking to the people that are high up in the church. They were talking to so many different people at once that all of a sudden, like, no one knew what they were. And is that what you're talking about when you say fine art with a
1: capital F, capital A? Actually, I spell it with a small F and then a capital A. Oh, just looks more like fart that way. Yes. But the weird, okay, so the really important thing about my concept of fine art is that it's not a quality that's inherent in the object, right? The objects can be used for purely functional purposes, like an Andy Warhol that's being used as an investment object, right? Every art object can be used in all sorts of ways. The fine art part of it, the fart part of it, is about one function that art can serve. And what gets invented in 1500. Is a new function for art. So I like to think that art doesn't exist as an object. it's something you do to an object. You art something by using it for all of these weird, indeterminate functions. You use it as, a, as I like. Here's, here's my quote, as a machine for thinking. I think great fart is a machine for thinking before it's anything else. It's a stimulus to more complex thought, and that's what makes it fine art. That's what makes it fart and not just visual culture. It has a different huh. function at that point. But every object has many different functions, and one of them can be to, to fart.
0: If you can name one work of art that, for lack of a better term, has shaken you to the core, where, like, maybe it happened immediately, maybe it happened over time, what is one? that just
1: shook you? What a great question. I'm not easily shaken. I'm pretty steady on my feet, but let me think for a second here. Something, you know what, I'm, I'm trying to think of something that I didn't understand or like at first. Well, you know, I'll give you an example. Like early, early, early on, my first trip to Europe with a girlfriend when I was like 18, I guess, that's when I really discovered art. I mean, we had art around the house. My parents were amateur art critics, but It was on that trip. I read Gombrich's The Story of Art. My girlfriend brought it with, actually. One of my
2: favorite books.
1: Amazing, amazing book. And I read it, and then all I wanted to do was spend time in museums. I didn't want to do anything else. It was just, I spent like a week in the Prado. When we were in Madrid, all I would do was go to the Prado over and over and over. But this is a memory from the old Jeu de Paume Museum in Paris, which is where they used to keep all the Impressionist works, which are now in the the Musée d'Orsay. And it was a Cézanne. And I just thought, I don't understand this thing. I know he's supposed to be great, but I can't say why he's great. It was just a painting of like four apples. But I realized this is the most complex experience I've ever had. I can't figure this thing out. It's totally weird and wrong. I mean, it doesn't look like apples, but it also doesn't not look like apples. That is, it's not an abstraction. I just, it was that really was the moment, I think, when I figured out at least what I value in art, which is this baffling complexity and a complete, I mean, there's nothing, I mean, that looks like Cézanne before Cézanne, so he's not generating clichés even a tiny bit or relying on clichés.
2: The father of us all, Picasso said of him.
1: Yeah. I mean, just amazing.
0: Okay. So I was at the Byler Foundation during Art Basel this last year, and there was a Mondrian retrospective. And he's just famous normally for these grids. But I didn't know that he had this incredible evolution of basically Uh painting through every single movement of his lifetime. And I was going through each room and kind of having an emotional response before you got to these grids, which I am very unattracted to, borderline repulsed by. Personally, repulsed
1: is good. Uh, um, board is bad, repulsed is good.
0: But I got to this room where he had painted a windmill and he had painted it three times morning, noon, and night. So just different light, yeah, or it was dusk, maybe. And from far away, it looked photorealistic, and then. As I got close, it looked very gestural. And I Matt was home in Connecticut, I think, or New York. Brooklyn, yeah. And I, I lost it. I was, I was crying uh-huh. in the middle of the museum. I don't know why, but this painting of a windmill at night that looked like a photograph from far away, but was so gestural up close. And I, I was like, "Did I Facetime you, or are I, I?" You was, were, you were, I remember. I was like, I couldn't stop this texting story. him. I was like, "This is the most beautiful painting I've ever seen. Why is he famous for these grids? Uh, like, is- it's these windmills, you know?" And I love that moment when you just you, you're shaken. Yeah by an artist so. i have one What? And
2: i really want to get this out because it's it's such a strange one is i've actually never seen this painting in person uh-huh. i remember i was in a Christie's ed course and he's going through a slideshow of how light how artists wrangled light in paintings because you you know obviously for the byzantine and medieval period everything was illuminated everywhere that makes sense And then they slowly started to learn through Brunelleschi and perspective and how to move light and have light come from different points. And he showed me in a linear fashion, the progress that was made over a couple hundred years. And he finished with this painting by an artist named Georges de la Tour.
1: Of course. Yeah.
2: And a painting with something with St. Joseph. And it's a young girl with an old man and her hand is in front of a candle. Yeah. And I remember being like, because you look at it from the medieval times and everything is fully illuminated to this painting of this interior with this candlelight being the only source of light in this room and this guy's emotion in his face and the young girl that like, I got real emotional on a PowerPoint deck. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Like just this ability to just harness this, this beast, the electromagnetism light, where you able to depict this in a canvas to me was like just a triumphant achievement. And I couldn't believe it. And that has stuck out to me, that painting. It's in my phone. So I look at it all the time. Yeah. It's an amazing work. It is. That harnessing of the light to me was like, man, So
1: anyway, That's basically what my PhD was on, just incidentally. Really? Just to toot my own horn. Yeah. What it means for that kind of progress to be made, what it means when you can't make the progress anymore, it was about kind of the philosophy behind what you're just talking about, what it means to wrangle nature and wrangle illumination in that way. Because it's more complex than people realize. It's not just a technological discovery. It's rhetorical. It's philosophical. It's yeah. really amazingly interesting.
2: We were chatting about some topics we wanted to cover on this episode. We, had, we hit on the climate protests in Europe a couple times in the podcast, but... The you, food, said,
1: you mean the food thrown through? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which food I think has
2: is. maybe receded from the public's mind because there hasn't been one of these incidents in the last few weeks. But, but There will be. There, there will be. be. So curious to get your thoughts on it, because you said you had an interesting take that maybe you hadn't seen out in the public so far.
1: Well, I don't know if it's that interesting, but (laughs) what impresses me about it in the 21st century is that what it proves is that art still has this ridiculous importance to us, right? That even pretending to destroy art or threaten to destroy art has a kind of cultural valence that you wouldn't expect right? We're coming to the end of the world, the notion that, you know, great art is, you know, think of some pompous thing to say, great art expresses the verities of the human spirit or something. We question all that all the time, and yet, when push comes to shove, oh, there's a good cliche for you, when push (laughs) comes to shove, the the way you get attention, because this is only about getting attention for something that we should be paying a lot more attention to, The, the way you get attention is by just putting a spotlight on art, just relating to art being near art it's really just a way of being near art of saying me plus art right me plus art pay attention and that's surprising it was less surprising in you know i guess the 8th century in byzantium when art was connected to god so destroying icons or preserving icons that you know obviously had some some meaning but it's surprising that in the 21st century art still Matters in that profound way to us, and we've been making art for what two hundred thousand years, Man. and that's what's so weird. Like, why do humans care so much about these stupid things we make? I gotta be honest. Over Christmas break, I watched a movie called Knives Out. It was Glass Onion.
2: It's the sequel to Knives Out, and yeah, you know, go watch the movie. It's fun. But there's a scene where a precious art collection. And they had taken real paintings, and obviously these are not the actual paintings, but this guy had the Mona Lisa in the movie, and Pollock's, and Rothko's, and just an amazing billion to billions of dollars collection. Spoiler alert, they all light on fire at the end and they get destroyed. Uh, uh. And I'm watching this and I can't even help myself. I have like a visceral reaction. I'm like, oh God, no, don't do that to the art. Like, I didn't even care about the people. I was just like, what's going on with the art? Please don't burn it. I just felt like that. And it goes to your point, like. There is something so potent about that icon, that image of someone destroying these, these objects.
1: Yeah. It's it's,
2: it's it's surprising, but I think it's universal. I think it even affects people who aren't interested in arts. You see those things. Obviously, the yeah.
1: protesters wouldn't do it if right. it only spoke to the art world. They're doing it because it speaks to everyone beyond the art world. That's what's right. so strange. Like, why the hell do people line up to take a selfie with the Mona Lisa? It makes no sense. It's just some oil paint on a surface. You know, there's no way that object should have the power it does. It should interest the three of us cuz we're into art. Maybe. I don't even like the painting that we much. We think
0: it's overrated. I think it's overrated <laughs> too. Okay, the I'm three not... of us have
1: all the three of us have all agreed on this and so it is officially <laughs> there's overrated. stronger Da Vinci's out there. Yeah. I, mean, oh. I think yeah. Like the Salvatore Mundi.
0: I listened to an interview It's worth more.
1: The Salvatore Mani Mundi is worth more so it's therefore a greater there for work more of art. Our... <laughs> I've,
0: I've I've listened to an interview with one of the leaders of the organization who's part of the i don't know what the name of the organization is that's doing this in the u k who's who's throwing, throwing the, food, the soup, yep, yeah. Yeah. and the reason they're throwing the soup, I don't know if you know there's a reason for soup is because right now people are so poor because of the energy crisis and because of the economy, they're being passed out soup.
1: Literally. Soup kitchens, kitchens, yeah.
0: But they cannot afford to even heat the soup that they're being given. Yet these museums are being heated and these paintings are being given preferential treatment over the human beings that live in these cities. I feel outraged, obviously, when I see it, because again, it causes a visceral feeling for me. The woman who leads this organization absolutely promises it's going to continue to happen and that it's moving forward. They do not care if they go to jail and it's not going to be works behind glass moving forward. It's going to be real works. They don't care if the works get permanently damaged. They care about their government caring about human beings over paintings paintings over human said.
1: beings paintings over human beings oh you mean they want the government to to care uh, for, about yeah, humans
0: sorry. over paintings
1: yeah. yeah yeah totally i love inter- interrupting people correct uh, did
0: you i know. yeah did i fuck it up but no, i no no I, I, I fucked
1: up the fucking up <laughs>
0: <laughs> but i and i'm not like on i i don't know whose side i'm on because i i as an art lover and as somebody who feels like Quite often, these objects are important because they pass down a story. Maybe they're the wrong story. Maybe they're the wrong version of history that we need to pass down. I don't know. Maybe the world is ending if we don't change. And so then, therefore, it's the wrong version of history to pass. I don't know. But oftentimes I hold these objects in high regard and I and I'm protective over them spiritually and mentally. But, you know, I'm watching this stuff happen in real time and I'm very afraid for something very important to get hurt. And I'm sure what's going to end up happening is like a lot what the Met does, where it's like you're not looking at real things. You're looking at Fakes and they're not even good fakes at well, the Met or, or not at the Met. I'm sorry, the Natural History Museum.
1: Well, like, for that matter, just putting a painting behind glass is already a problem. Yeah, they really shouldn't be behind glass. It really changes the experience of them. I'm yeah. against. I'm really against glass on on works of art. And if this forces more glazing of works of art, that's really a shame.
0: Yeah. You or, know? but I mean, it, like it'll be like the Natural History Museum. I Whether meant to say. Put where fixed. they're, like, like you know, like, when you go to see, like, the T-Rex, it's not like you're really looking at a T-Rex. You're looking at, like, you're, bones that have been what? Ca- cast. What? Some you combination. Know.
1: There might be three bones Th- that are It'll original. it be, like,
0: 3D-printed re- pre- fake paintings that are re... Reproduced oh, but if or they're whatever. perfect, who
1: cares, right? I mean, if they're absolutely perfect, and these days they're coming damn close,
0: right? To and being then the perfect. real ones are like buried underground or something. Yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm just punching
1: in a rich here. person's vault. That's the problem. If they end yeah. up in rich people's vaults, right? <laughs> That's. I
2: just wanted to quickly ask: Have you been tracking some of the the unionization movements that are happening? Museums. I'm just curious: What have been your thoughts on that? We were talking about museums that they are not the problem, but it seems to be. Many of the employees are having huge problems with their employer, the museum. So,
1: just curious to hear your thoughts on it. I would say that across the board, especially in the United States, no no one at the bottom of the social ladder is paid enough. It's not complicated. No one should be paid fifteen, seventeen bucks. You can't live on that, right? Especially in New York. You know, I think that they should they should pay way, way, way more. Like I I think minimum wage should be more like thirty dollars an hour. But are museums
2: able to accommodate? St- I don't know with the budgets and the, the revenues and the cash flow that museums are making. I know a lot of them receive private funding from very wealthy people. Typically, those things go towards maybe acquisitions, et cetera, right? Where operations yeah, become- that's the problem. The second part. I remember during COVID, the rules had changed. I was working at Christie's at the time and it was a boom for Christie's because museums were able to sell paintings- To, to, to yeah. fund operations as opposed to just reacquire more works. And it was like, I remember a museum down in Baltimore decided to sell some major pieces, and the local community blew a gasket and protest. And I was part—I was part of that whole thing. really, yeah—part yeah. of that fuss. So, but the question is, I guess, can museums do they have the budgets to be able to pay more, and they choose not to, or are they simply just the model is broken, where they can't accommodate the salaries of the local people that live in these cities? to a livable standard, I I don't know.
1: You have, I mean, you know, imagine if they were paying seven bucks an hour or three bucks an hour, they would say, well, we can't afford more because then we couldn't spend this other money on the other things we're now spending it on. You've got to, you have no choice but to pay a living wage, a real true living wage. And then everything else has to follow from that. And whether it's more fundraising, sure, museums might not be able to be what they are now if they paid a, a genuinely living wage. But there's no choice. You, you got to do it. Would, it. would it lead to mandatory
2: admission fees, for example? Or, I don't know, privatizations or something. I, I don't know how you find the right balance to provide a livable wage in New York City, but keeping it free and democratized for people to go and see, which you and I both agree with. These museums should be free. The Met, the MoMA. these should And places. have
1: been at various times in their history, mostly. Right. That's what we've lost sight of. A lot of museums were once free that aren't anymore. Right. See, the thing... My model museum's at the their libraries. That's where we store our shit. That's where we, the society, stores our most amazing objects. In this country, they happen to be private, but they're only kind of semi-private, right? In other countries, they're owned by the people. They're owned by the, by the country. So I think that you want as many objects in there as possible. That's where we're keeping it, right? It's all the great stuff is there. But, and there's also, and there's one other thing. Whenever people say that, they say, you know, the Met shows 2% of its objects. The vast majority of the objects that it owns are prints. They can't go on the wall for very long. They're not, it's not about sh- showing prints. Print collections always are about collecting, you know, all thousand Rembrandt prints, right? They're, it's a repository. So most of the objects that aren't shown are potsherds from some dig In the Middle East, their prints, there's a million things there, literally a million, that you wouldn't want them to show, right? They're not things that are worthy of being on the wall. You know, if you just think about the things that everyone should have a chance to look at, the numbers are way, way smaller. I'm going to make it up. I'm going to say they show 50% or 75%. And you want them to have access to those other things because our tastes are going to change. There's going to be a moment where... It turns out that Vermeer is really not interesting. I can't believe those idiots in the 20th century showed Vermeer. And that's going to go back in the basement and we're going to pull out a favorite of mine, Ter Borch, you know, instead and say, oh, he was the great Dutch artist. So we need that because we're always wrong. So, Blake, you recently
2: had a a piece of art criticism about the Matisse show at MoMA, which was entitled,
1: it was The Red... Roo? Red Studios, Red this studio. amazing little, little show that was just about one painting, mm-hmm. which is a painting that Matisse did of his studio. Mm-hmm. So it's full of, the painting is full of pictures of his works of art. And then they they found most of those works of art and put it in the show. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And so, I,
2: that that show, I remember, we're, we're just getting over 2022, but in the end of year roundups in almost every art publication, it was like one of the shows of the year. Even though it was sure. small. Even yeah. though it's small. You know,
1: not an obvious blockbuster. But it was just brilliant. And for me, what matters is, and this is going to sound pretty boring, but it was art historically great. It said something new. And wait a minute, I got that wrong. It didn't say something new. It gave us the chance, we viewers, the chance to have new thoughts about the painting. It didn't hammer us over the head. This is our take. It just said, oh, look at this. What happens if we put this painting out there and then show all the artworks that were in the room
2: with it? So tell me about your process in writing that piece of criticism and generally how you approach these types of of writings.
1: Well, it wasn't a review of the show. A colleague at at the Times did the normal review, but I was looking at the show and spent tons of time in it, and I had an aha moment. I thought I had an insight. And for me, good criticism is about having a strong, frankly, new take, something that has a new reading that changes what the art on view means. And for me, it was that I suddenly realized that within the red studio, there's an empty chair that Matisse paints and it's facing a wall with a huge nude on the wall. And that nude was destroyed after Matisse's death by his daughter. And guess what that nude was of? It was a nude of her when she was, I think, when she was 16. So this red studio is really about an empty chair and an opportunity to look at his 16-year-old daughter. (laughs) So there's some very strange stuff going on in this picture, and I don't want to cancel Matisse because of that. He was living in a different moment where painting your 16-year-old daughter nude meant something different than it does now, maybe? To being a little bit, I don't know, defending Matisse a little bit here? Not that he needs me to defend him, but what matters to me is not the particular thing that I noticed, though I was excited about that, but that model for what our criticisms could be. Right. Art criticism should change what it means to look at the work. It should be like good art history, like great art history. It should have that power. It should be about the art and it should be finding new readings, new interpretations. It should be like if if I were a director, uh, directing Hamlet on Broadway or off-Broadway, If I just did exactly what everyone has always done, if I just said, oh yes, Hamlet has this indecision problem and my play is going to be about Hamlet's indecision problem, I'd be laughed Mm off-Broadway. Art criticism should have the same ambitions. It should reinterpret. It should give us new ways of looking at art. And I'm just heartbroken that, I'll be frank with you, very few of my colleagues seem to have that. As an ambition, and I mean my colleagues across the entire profession, or I should say my colleagues who are in mass media criticism, Mm, because that's what I'm in. Art historians, of course, that's what they try to do. They mostly fail because everyone fails at everything all the time. But there are a few great art historians who change what it means to look at art. And I think that should be the ambition of art criticism to at least, you know, I like to think, you know, people, there's this cliché, that newspapers are the first draft of history. Well, I think newspaper criticism should be the first draft of art history, should say, look at this, think about this in this new way, and then an art historian can run with it or say it's silly or whatever. But I think the goal should be partly to translate the brilliance of art history, which is written often in impenetrable prose meant for an ivory tower, and that's fine with me. But I think our job, as critics, should be to translate that. The way, I mean, science journalists do it all the time, right? They take complicated scientific ideas and translate them. I would like to imagine that we can take complicated art historical ideas and especially art historical ways of thinking and use them as tools, demonstrate to people how this all works, that art history, using the tools of art history, can re-energize the work. And you think that many and not your
2: specific colleagues, but generally mass media criticism are are failing to do this, right? They're they, missing the mark on it. Why do we think that is? You know, is it too, is it hard? Is it hard work that people don't want to go and dig deep on or Or do you else? think
0: that they're, do you think they're afraid of offending?
1: I think it's just not a model. I think that's the problem is when they ask themselves, in fact, I was taken to task by a very senior art critic on Facebook, I guess, for even suggesting this as a model. He said, that's ridiculous. That has nothing to do. I look at art and I feel something and I share what I feel with the audience. That's one of the cliches. There are all of these cliches. You know, I'm just, I just stand for my audience and I can't afford to be any smarter or any different than they are. You know, there are a bunch of different things than, you know, I think they're kind of cop-outs, but it's not really that it's a cop-out. It's that my model isn't the standard model and maybe I'm wrong right? Maybe I just have a shitty model that, that gets it wrong, but it's a model that I like for how our criticisms have And you've used the terms you've written. I've, I've, I've read an essay about how some mass
2: media critics are, quote, addicted to cliches. So if you could unpack that for me, I'm very curious. What cliches are they addicted to? Is it the phrases that they use or the ideas that they
1: repeat across different pieces of criticism? You know, I don't care about verbal cliches. Mm. Verbal cliches can actually be quite useful shortcuts, to ideas that we all share, right? What was the cliche I used a minute ago in this podcast? I said, can I remember? Push comes to shove. Push comes to shove, right? (laughs) Now, when I say push comes to shove, I don't say that because I think it's a brilliant poetic phrase. It's not because I think that's an interesting metaphor. It's because it's a shorthand and shorthands are useful. So I don't care about cliches of diction. What I care about is cliches of thought. Those do real harm. They're a kind of non-thought. Can you give me an example of a cliche thought that you've seen? i in... trying to think of someone that Lucian Freud captures the pain of human existence in the very matter that he manipulates across the surface of the canvas, right? That's a classic. Or that paint stands for flesh. You see that all the time. In the essay that you said you read by me about criticism, I quote a critic actually saying that paint is like flesh. You know, all of these things were once smart things to say. They were once things that serious art historians said. They were innovative, important things. Like, for instance, formalist take on a picture saying, I'm really interested in the composition and the use of color. That all comes out of a couple of brilliant critics in the 1920s, really. Mm-hmm. Right? Roger Fry, basically. And now we're still using them. but And they have no content left at all. They are cliches of ideas in that mm-hmm. way. And the problem is we don't recognize the roots of a lot of the cliches. We just use them again and again. We don't realize that the people who coined those cliches of thought were doing amazing things. And we have a responsibility to be as smart as they were to find new, exciting, important things to say about works of art.
0: So it took me 36, 37 years to come out as a writer. So I didn't realize I was a writer. I I. I, like you, actually, I did dabble in photography, literally performance art. I do look at Jared Gagosian as a work of art that is ongoing. I think I think of memes as art as well, but I think that my my sort of highest form, ultimately, that is yet to sort of be fully realized, that is just starting to come out, is writing. And
1: I'm going to interrupt you for one second. Yeah. Do you see your writing as a form of so-called visual art that is as a part of the that field of creativity or is it part of the literary thing which is somewhat different?
0: Mm, right now, because I've been writing about the art world, it's been sort of sociological writings. So it's not necessarily art criticism. It's Taking a helicopter view, when I started writing, I relied heavily on photographs and images. So it was sort of like a storybook where I would write these reports and I would also use photographs that I would take to tell these stories, these reports. And now it's come to the point where my last one, I told my readers, you're going to have to trust me and there will be no images and you will just have to read. And and I think it's the best one that I've ever written. And I hope that they get better and better. But this isn't just where I'm going to go. My next project in the new year is I'm writing a book.
1: I'm so sorry for you. I know.
0: No, I'm I'm ready. I'm ready. I feel I feel 10 months pregnant for the, of this book. I it's it's going to it's coming she out. It doesn't look
1: 10 months pregnant. Let me it's, just say it's it. coming
0: it's... out whether whether I want it to or not, you know, and it's it is a book about art, but it's not, and it's a book about my views on art, but it's not literary and it's not autobiographical and it's not like preachy, it's not a religion either. It's sort of I don't know what it is yet. It's a work of art. But it's interesting listening to you and sort of how you come to what you come to because it sounds so organized and like you you have a plan and you have a mission and you don't necessarily know what you're going to get to but you have a path and as somebody who it took me 37 years to even realize that I'm a writer I'm so daunted and terrified because I'm like what am I, how am I going to do this now? You know? And so I admire you.
1: I don't Sorry. practice what I preach. Let's just be very <laughs> clear. Out of like a thousand pieces I've written probably. Really? A thousand, two thousand. I don't know how many I've written. Yeah. There are five that I think are any good at all. Really? Maybe 10. So, you know, it's you know, are you mostly, hard on
0: yourself too? I'm so hard on myself. Uh,
1: my wife, I'm sure, would say that I'm way too easy on myself. Really? But, uh, you know, I'm a big mouth. I like to talk, so I do it a lot. But, you know, yeah, it's hard. It's so hard to do good work in any field, you know, and which, what counts as good is never clear, even to the person, to anyone, the, you know, the audience or the writer. It's, it's, it's murder, but it's easier mm-hmm. than art. I think what I do is so much easier. Than being Andy Warhol. You know, writing about Andy Warhol, trying to be clear and interesting about Andy Warhol is so much easier than being as complex and fucked up as Andy Warhol was. I have infinite respect for the great artists and their minds and everything about them. It's terrifying to me. Do
0: you think that criticism is something that is slowly becoming obsolete?
1: It depends what you mean by criticism. Art it better criticism. not. It better not, because A, I like to eat. B, and here I'm I'm really following the footsteps of a Berkeley philosopher called Alva Noe, who's just coming out with a great new book called The Entanglement, which I was lucky to read early on in its history. I think that art actually is constituted, exists, only happens when people are talking about it in discourse is what Alva would say. That's when the art is there. I mean, if art is a verb, if art is something you do to objects, if you art them, you turn them, an object into a work of art, that happens when it becomes part of discourse, when you're talking about it. And by talking about it, I'm willing to include making other works that look like it or don't look like it. That is, it can be part of a verbal, uh, sorry, visual discourse as much as a verbal discourse. But For art to be alive, for art to mean anything, for art to exist, it has to be part of a conversation. And if art criticism, which in some ideal world is the highest, most complex, most interesting kind of conversation, if that dies, then art dies, says he self-servingly. But it's, you know, uh, one way or another, people have to be able to talk about art and importantly, have to be able to, someone's got to talk about it in a way that everyone can understand. Because I love art historians but they quite properly have to write at the highest level for their colleagues. That's their job. And there have to be other people talking in a way that everyone can understand.
0: Right. I agree with you 100%. Well, Blake, I have to say you are a worthy hero, and it has been an, an absolute honor and pleasure to have you on Art Smack. And I have to say you just smacked you art smacked the shit out of us. And it was and it was a delight. I'm blushing
1: here folks. I am uh, blushing. You can't see me but I am blushing.
0: We thank you so much for giving us your time this afternoon to come on the show. And we were just curious, are you working on anything? You have anything coming up that the people should know about?
1: For my sins, I am writing another <laughs> biography. Yeah, I can't believe that I'm willing to do this again. What because did I you do? Died. What a past life. I know, it's a nightmare. And I thought it was going to be a little easier. Uh, it's a biography of the great, insane, brilliant American collector, Albert Barnes. There's uh-huh. the whole Albert Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia. Fascinating, way more interesting figure, even than I thought. But it turns out that like Warhol, he kept every goddamn piece of paper including a lot of his letters are in eight copies he had them you know copied out by secretaries or on carbon paper so I am just swamped in documents here they're fascinating they're amazing it turns out he was really you know for a white guy in the 20s was insanely pro-black I mean just the most interesting guy also a maniac I mean you did not want to cross him or There would be private detectives following you, but now I've got to write the goddamn book based on infinite number of documents. And I've got to somehow take those, I guess there must be hundreds of thousands of documents, Figure out which ones I got to look at and then try to turn that into a book. So uh, if you don't see me in the galleries, that's because I am like a hermit (laughs) at my computer. And, And in the
2: meantime, while the book's being written, people can read your work in the New York Times.
1: Yeah, in New York Times every Friday I do Blake's Friday pick. It used to be a daily pick. It started out seven days a week, and it almost oh killed God. me. Then it was five days a week, and that almost killed me. So now I'm down to just one day a week, so I can write my book. But yeah, Fridays BlakeGopnik.com, where HolyAnna.com is where I store up all my Warhol stuff, all the reviews of my book. Also, I am very proud to say this: as far as I know, I'm the only biographer who's keeping a page of corrections. So every time I find out something in my book is wrong. I put it on my website and, you know, and tell them which page it's on. And if someone wanted to, they could go through and like annotate the book with all the corrections. And we'll link
2: all, all of Blake's sites in the description of the, of the podcast this yeah. week. So definitely make sure you check it out.
1: And I also, I want to
2: do a call out to the audience for those who are still listening. Blake, Jerry, and I shared the painting that moved us the most. And I'm actually really curious. I want to hear your guys' response. So our email is hello at artsmackpodcast.com. Send in the paintings that moved you the most. We'd love to hear your individual stories. Or videos. Or videos. Or whatever you got. I really want to hear the stories because I think everyone's is so unique and different. It's a really fascinating thing. So, Blake, thank you.
0: Thank you so much. And we'll see you on the internet.
1: It's been a huge pleasure.